1922, Western novelist Zane Grey published his book, To the Last Man. It was an exciting romantic tale about star-crossed lovers from feuding families in Arizona's rim country. The protagonist is a half-Amerindian man called to his father's side from Oregon to help protect the family fortunes from their enemies, rustlers and sheep herders trying to grab up the range for themselves. And, horror of horrors, the beautiful woman he met as he first entered the Rim Territory was the daughter of that family. Now, the plot has many twists and turns. Conflict begins in earnest after the death of a sheep herder. One family attacks the cabin of the other family in broad daylight, and there is an escalating circle of violence. Does any of that sound familiar? The answer is, of course, yes, because, as you well know by now, this was not made up by Gray out of whole cloth. He actually spent time in Arizona's rim country trying to get someone, anyone, to talk about this violent conflict that he heard whispered about in hushed tones. Now, in this, he was only partially successful, but not bothering to let something as silly as the facts get in the way of a great story, he based his popular novel on the stories he did manage to hear. And based on Gray's enduring popularity and notoriety, it became apparent that the public had an appetite for these stories. So it was that a mere 26 years after it had come to a close, the legend of the Pleasant Valley War had begun. But we aren't interested in the legend. So today's story is that of the conflict's final closing chapter. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 128, The Pleasant Valley War, Part 9. Oh God, Let Me Shoot. Welcome back, everyone. In what seems to be a rarity for this miniseries on the Pleasant Valley War, we are actually having two episodes back-to-back. When we last left off, the bloody months of August and September 1887 were followed by five years of mutual recrimination, but no active hostility. And I do want to insert something here that I forgot to mention last week when bringing both sides of the conflict up to that fateful year of 1892. That is the death of James Dunning Tewksbury, the family patriarch who died of natural causes on March 17, 1891, at his ranch. Tewksbury was predeceased by three of his sons, John, Jim, and Frank, with Ed being the only living son from his first marriage. Author Don Dedera says that the elder Tewksbury, who had played very little to no part in the violence that had swirled around his sons, left an estate valued at a little over $5,000. But after that brief pause, we again skip to the fateful day of August 2nd, 1892, when Tom Graham, the last of his family, was gunned down on the streets of Tempe. As I said last week, he named, several times according to witnesses, Ed Tewksbury and John Rhodes as his assassins. And this is the thread I want to pick up, because... Again, as mentioned in the last episode, before his death, 
Tom heard the news that Rhodes had been taken into custody. This seemed to have happened fairly quickly, and Rhodes made no attempt to resist arrest at all. Though I will note that at least one of my sources says that Rhodes was not apprehended until 10 o'clock that night, while the others agree that he was taken into custody in the morning, maybe 10 a.m., well before Tom Graham drew his last breath. The capture of Rhodes riled up the people of Tempe. As I said last episode, and I keep using that phrase, he had for years been working for a local magnate named Robert Bowen, and was therefore a known fixture about the town. The consensus seems to be that when he was in his cups, a regular occurrence, he could have a mercurial temper that would lead to trouble. When he was arrested in connection with the heinous murder on their own streets, the citizens of Tempe were naturally vengeful-minded. We also have to keep in mind that this act was a giant black mark on not only the city, but on the territory as well. By 1892, Tempe was a model of civilization, an up-and-coming burg that had blossomed out of the desert with grain mills, churches, banks, multi-storied hotels, and a normal school that was already beginning to train teachers. To put it simply, it was becoming respectable something that a cold-blooded murder certainly didn't help with. Indeed, few criminal cases at the time could compete in salaciousness with this grisly murder, the last act of an entrenched, bitter war between two backward families. The Arizona Republican, the forerunner for today's Republic newspaper, made the most of its coverage, hoping to finally distinguish its little rag from the likes of the Phoenix Gazette and the Phoenix Herald, which all competed for the city's 4,000 readers. The then two-year-old Republican would keep the story on the front page for 11 straight days, and it's for this case that it would commission the first illustrations ever to run in its pages. Now, I've tried to avoid making this metaphor, but as I sat down and was writing, I kept thinking time and time again that the upcoming trial over this murder was basically the O.J. Simpson trial of its day. Now, I hate such comparisons, and the formulation of X being the Y of its day is beyond cliché, but really in terms of media and public attention, the analogy unfortunately holds up. And like I said, that wasn't always a good thing. This story, and the whole saga of the Pleasant Valley War, even if the details weren't always entirely right, was making headlines across the country. For a territory climbing its way toward respectability and already talking about making a run for statehood, this was the worst possible press it could be receiving. The Los Angeles Times quipped, quote, If Arizona should have a few more feuds like that out in Tonto Basin, it would be difficult to get enough people together there ever to admit her as a state, end quote. And the Phoenix Herald was forced to admit that they had really hit the nail on the head, saying, quote, as well might Arizona to expect water to flow uphill as to expect decent people and capital to locate itself in a region of country where life is subject to the bullet of the assassin at any moment, and property is liable to be destroyed without regard to ownership by warring factions and deadly vindictive strife. End quote. So, as you can expect, emotions were running high when it was announced that one of the assassins, as he was already being painted by the press, had been arrested. 
Charles Duché, Tom Graham's self-proclaimed bodyguard who had been working on a distant part of Graham's property when his charge was killed, was said to actually be walking the streets of Tempe with a pistol looking to gun down roads. And fearing that a public lynching was imminent, law enforcement spirited their captive to Phoenix later in the day, which might account for the discrepancy of when Rhodes was actually taken into custody. Even then, Duché was said to be headed toward Phoenix with a rifle before being persuaded not to do anything rash. Rhodes would be whisked into a courtroom the next day, where a hearing was scheduled for Monday, August 4th. He then was whisked back to jail under very heavy guard before the public could hear about it and decide that a day was too long to wait for justice. The trial of John Rhodes would contain one more dramatic set piece in a story full of dramatic set pieces. He was represented by two of the most expensive attorneys to be found in the entire territory, leading to gossip about who could possibly be bankrolling this cowpuncher's defense. The rumors floating around then and since is that it was the Daggs brothers, the sheep barons who had backed the Tewksbury side so far. A parade of witnesses came and went over the next few days, numbering upward of 56, and were able to testify mostly that they had seen someone who looked like Ed Tewksbury, but not really Rhodes himself. Most of the evidence against him was circumstantial at best, putting him here or there on the morning of the 2nd with enough time to ride from here, go and kill Graham, and then go there. Of course, they did have the testimony of the witnesses that had attended Tom Graham, who all swore that the dying man had fingered Rhodes as one of his assailants. They also had the statements of Duché and other trackers who claimed that they had identified the hoof prints of Rhodes' horse, which could be identified by an undersized shoe on one of its feet. But the real drama was with Annie Graham, who appeared in court with her three-year-old daughter, both dressed in black mourning clothes. Annie was able to sit inside the court railing, so up in front where the prosecution and defense sat, instead of in the gallery with onlookers and other witnesses. On the second day of this hearing, Annie positioned herself in a seat closest to the bar, and even traded places with another witness when they had tried to sit in that seat. She threw back her heavy veil and asked for a glass of water. When it was brought to her, she stood up to drink it, and then, locking eyes on Rhodes, she lunged forward. Hidden inside a small cloth clutch was Tom Graham's Colt 45 Peacemaker revolver, which she had loaded and smuggled into the court that day. Pulling it out, she ran up to Rhodes, pushing the muzzle against his back, and she pulled the trigger. However, the very means of smuggling the gun to court foiled her plans. The revolver's hammer caught on a piece of cloth from the handbag and just couldn't strike hard enough to actually fire the weapon. The whole courtroom suddenly burst into a scene of pandemonium. People ran outside. Bailiffs and law enforcement ran in to separate Annie and Rhodes, carrying the hysterical widow from the room. As she was being pulled away, she struggled and screamed, quote, Oh my God, let me shoot. Oh, do let me shoot. Oh, God, let me shoot. Oh, God, he killed my husband. Oh, God, let me shoot. Oh, Jesus, let me shoot. Oh, God, he killed my husband. I have no one. They ain't doing anything. Oh, somebody help me. End quote. And with that, she was pulled outside and would be kept away for the rest of the trial. 
One journalist would call this latest burst of vengeance, quote, one of the most sensational and exciting scenes ever witnessed in an American court of justice, end quote. And I think you'll agree that he may have been right on that. Following this attempted assassination, the rest of the trial feels almost anticlimactic. The prosecution called witness after witness, building a very circumstantial case against Rhodes. So the defense naturally was to call its own witnesses, testifying that Rhodes simply wasn't in the area at the time. They had their own parade of witnesses testifying to this, but the most important was Rhodes' boss, Robert Bowen. He was a respected businessman, though, like we mentioned last week, possibly the man that had tipped the Tewksbury's off to Graham's location in the first place. Vigorous cross-examination of Rhodes himself and other defense witnesses managed to poke a few holes in his alibi, and during the closing arguments, the prosecution basically argued that Rhodes' alibi was mainly coming from his friends, and that he still had 30 to 40 minutes unaccounted for when he could have run off to help kill Graham. Finally, on August 19th, 15 days after proceedings began, the judge gave his ruling. He said that at first the prosecution had convinced him that Rhodes was indeed guilty, but the defense had established an alibi to the point that he couldn't convict. Therefore, he ruled that Rhodes was not guilty. Based on everything I've said so far, you can probably imagine that the denizens of Tempe, and Arizona as a whole, did not take this very well. The press raked the judge across the coals, with the Tucson Star saying, quote, We cannot conceive upon what grounds the defendant was discharged. Why go to the useless expense of an examination, which is but a travesty upon law and justice? End quote. The Phoenix Herald opined, quote, When dangerous men are turned loose with evidence almost sufficient to hang them against them, and a moral certainty that their freedom means additional murder or assassination, it is time the people of this county to begin to consider the kind of men they choose to preside over their justice courts. End quote. Citizens of the Salt River Valley were incensed to the point that there was some talk of hanging the judge in effigy. While in Tempe, 45 leading citizens gathered together and produced a resolution calling the ruling an unwarranted assumption of power. Though he was now a free man, for his own safety, Rhodes slept in jail the night of his acquittal before leaving for Pleasant Valley with a heavily armed escort the next day. Decades later, Rhodes would give a statement to a friend that was put into the Arizona Historical Review. In it, Rhodes claims that he was working in the Salt River Valley, but didn't bother carrying a gun or worrying about reports that Tom Graham wanted him dead. But then one day he says Tom Graham pointed him out to Charles Duchesne. So he then called Ed Tewksbury at once and stated that something had to be done. Either Ed had to kill Graham, or he would do it. He then went on to say that Ed had been the one to actually shoot Graham, but he had been there to help. But like I said, that was decades later. For now, Rhodes got off on his murder charge. If the folks in Tempe were angry about this ruling, they did have one beacon of hope. Word had come down that Ed Tewksbury had surrendered himself to the law and would be coming in to stand trial. There may be one more chance for justice yet.
So, let's talk about Ed Tewksbury. In the aftermath of the shooting, Tewksbury had separated from Rhodes and was riding due east. By the time he made it to Mesa, six miles away, news of the murder had already flashed across the wires, as they say, and law enforcement in town had been alerted that a possible murderer was on his way. However, Ed rode right through the town without anyone doing anything to stop him because the deputy sheriff there said that he didn't look like the man described. By riding hard and changing horses, Ed was able to concoct for himself a neat little alibi. He was seen on the night of August 1st in Pleasant Valley, and he was seen on the afternoon and evening of August 2nd in Pleasant Valley. If Tom Graham had been killed hundreds of miles away in the early morning of August 2nd, how could Ed have done it? But that's a matter for the courts to decide, and now I'm getting ahead of myself. During Rhodes's trial, word came down that Ed had surrendered himself to law enforcement and would be coming to stand trial. A deputy constable named Samuel Finley, who knew Ed personally, drew the assignment to bring him in, and so Finley rode to Pleasant Valley unarmed. On August 5th, three days after Graham's murder and the same day that Annie tried to gun down Rhodes, Finley was at the ranch previously owned by George Newton, asking for Ed. Told by the foreman that Ed had been sent to another location, Finley agreed to wait for someone to fetch him. Four hours later, Ed came riding in and gave himself up peacefully. Now, the only problem was getting Ed to his court appearance. Angered by the decision in the Rhodes case, a few very civic-minded citizens were waiting on the road to Tempe to take Ed and lynch him. So his escort took him down through Globe, where he got more protection, and then eventually down to Tucson. In Tucson, Ed would give a press interview where he claimed that he was miles away at the time of the shooting, and this was all the work of Charles Duché to take revenge on him. The only reason he was in jail, he said, was for protection. After all, Rhodes would have been lynched if the law hadn't kept him safe. And then very early the next morning, like 4 a.m., Ed and his guard were standing by a railroad line when a train came and slowed down but did not stop, and they were all hustled aboard, which is how Ed got to Phoenix before anyone had time to drop any murderous plans. I can't stress enough how much public opinion was by now against Ed. Newspaper accounts of Graham's killing made no bones about naming Ed as his murderer and didn't even bother to append the word alleged to their accounts. And once it was known that this cold-blooded assassin was in a Phoenix jail and wouldn't have his first hearing for another week and a half, some more civic-minded citizens decided that they should just storm the jail, take Ed, and dispense the justice he so clearly deserved. And this group actually rode from Tempe to Phoenix and split into smaller groups to approach the jail unnoticed. However, law enforcement expected something like this and had 17 armed guards already outside just in case. That didn't keep this group from prowling around all night screaming for justice. At one point, their threats were so intense that the sheriff actually handed Ed a pistol to defend himself in case they actually broke into the jail to do something. This group eventually dissipated, and Ed made it to his first hearing on August 29, 1892. 
once again a cavalcade of witnesses were brought forth to testify over the course of six days. In this instance, the testimony was more damning than it had actually been for Rhodes. One woman who had known Ed for years testified that she had seen him in Tempe on the morning of August 2nd, potentially obliterating his defense of having been in Pleasant Valley. Another man, apparently a local booze hound, testified that he had actually slept on the grass behind the local hotel and bar and then wandered in on the morning of the 2nd around 4 or 5 a.m. to get himself a shot of liquor. After he had ordered his drink, he claimed that either Ed Tewksbury or his exact duplicate came up and actually took his drink. When he protested quite loudly that he was in a hurry and it was very impertinent to steal another man's liquor, Ed is supposed to have replied that he was in a hurry too and went off without so much as apologizing or paying for the drink. The prosecution also made sure that everyone testified that Tom Graham was lucid and in his right mind when he made his pronouncements about Ed Tewksbury and John Rhodes killing him. So, through this all, the defense played the age-old trick of questioning everyone's memory. You know, they all claimed they saw Ed, but what was he wearing? What kind of horse was he riding? Did he have a mustache? Did you actually get a good look at him? And after the prosecution rested, the defense called 43 witnesses, all to testify that they had seen Ed Tewksbury in Pleasant Valley on the evening of August 1st and the afternoon and evening of August 2nd. In effect, the case came down to how fast could one man ride to get from the Tonto Basin to Tempe to kill a man and then get back. The defense also tried a neat little logical trick, arguing that the court had found John Rhodes not guilty and they had plenty of witnesses to testify that he had been elsewhere. So didn't that cast a lot of doubt on Tom Graham's dying statement? If the court says Rhodes wasn't there, but Tom Graham did, then how far could they trust Graham's statement about Ed being there too? After taking nearly a full day to weigh the matter at hand, the judge finally ruled that there were flaws in Ed's alibi. Ranchers weren't known to have accurate timepieces on the frontier, and the defense witnesses couldn't always be certain of the exact time they said things happened. Finding that the defense had not overcome the proof of the prosecution, the judge ruled that Ed's case would be sent to a grand jury, the only body capable of handing out an indictment for murder. However, as any lawyer will tell you, Finding an impartial jury in such a high-profile case is always a difficult task, and so the void deer process this time meant that though Ed's case was thrown to the grand jury at the beginning of September, it wouldn't be until December 2nd that the indictment was handed down. Ed's lawyers, the same strangely well-funded attorneys that had represented Rhodes, filed several motions, including one to contend that the whole process so far had been illegal, but another one for a change of venue. Once again, ask a lawyer and they'll tell you that changing to another venue in such a heated atmosphere was probably a very wise move. The judge would throw out the first motion, but granted the change in venue. So in July 1893, almost a year after Graham was shot down, the case moved to Tucson. But it wouldn't begin again in earnest until mid-December 1893, probably to give the Pima County attorney time to properly prepare to prosecute. This trial went much like the initial hearing and the grand jury proceedings, with the same evidence and the same testimony being presented. The jury deliberated for nearly three days, but eventually they came back with a verdict. Ed Tewksbury was guilty of killing Tom Graham. 
The news made headlines everywhere between San Francisco and New York, but a funny thing happened between the verdict and the sentencing. Most of the newspapers noted how composed and placid Tewksbury was, despite being convicted of murder, and this was perhaps for a good reason. See, Ed and his high-priced lawyers probably knew about something that would become his ace in the hole. You see, Ed had never officially entered a plea. Okay, a little law school 101 for you. Today, if you are arraigned before a court, you need to enter a plea. Guilty, not guilty, or in some cases, nolo contendere, rendered in English as no contest. And don't worry about that last one because it's not important to the story. But under the territorial law in Arizona at the time, you could either enter a plea of guilty or not guilty, or you could request a deferral on entering a plea to contest the legality of the proceedings. Which, you will recall, this is exactly what Ed's lawyers did. But between the contesting and the motion for a change of venue, they had never actually circled back to ask Ed to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. This was more than just an oversight. This means that a formal legal step and part of Ed's rights as a defendant had in fact been missed. That meant everything that has happened since was effectively null and void. His defense team couldn't file for a mistrial fast enough, and there was nothing the territorial's legal team could do about it. It's still a matter of debate if this was an honest mistake that was found out after the trial, or if his legal team knew about the oversight and just sat on it. You know, just in case. Yet another trial was set, but that wouldn't even start until January 1895, by which time Tom Graham had been dead for approaching two and a half years, and Ed Tewksbury had been living in jail for nearly as long. If you count all the hearings and court appearances between Rhodes and Tewksbury, this was the sixth time witnesses gave the same testimony, received the same cross-examination, and provided the same alibis. And in the end, this jury deadlocked 7-5 to five for acquittal. So, with a hung jury, yet another mistrial was declared. But though there was the option to try Tewksbury, again, the territory decided not to prosecute. They'd already spent more than $200,000 on this trial, which, if the internet has not failed me, is a little over $7.1 million in 2023 dollars. Plus, enough time had passed that the sheer public anger against Ed had died down, and it was entirely likely that should another trial happen, the jury would either deadlock again or he would just walk away free. Either way, there wasn't much in it for the prosecution anymore to keep, you know, prosecuting. Perhaps sensing this, the defense put in a motion to release their client on bail, stating in part that during the last couple of years of imprisonment, he had the opportunity to escape multiple times and he had not attempted to do so. Their first motion was denied, but in February 1895, the judge set a bail of $10,000. Without breaking a sweat, Ed, his friends and family, and his wealthy benefactors, maybe the Dags brothers, were able to raise the sum, and he walked out of jail a free man for the first time in nearly two and a half years. There was no doubt about what was going to happen next, just when it would happen. 
More than a year later, on March 12, 1896, the prosecution asked that the case be dropped. And with that last bit of clerical paperwork, the Pleasant Valley War came to a quiet close. Okay, I think it's time for an obligatory wrap-up and retrospective on what the heck just happened. So we're going to start with Ed Tewksbury, who wouldn't enjoy his exonerated status for really all that long. He would go on to marry in 1897 and have four children. He was also elected as the precinct constable in Globe. However, he suffered a stroke while working at the United Globe Mine, and his health never really recovered. In 1904, he would suffer another fatal stroke and die at the age of 46, less than a decade after probably getting away with murder. Fate was equally unkind, in the end, to Annie Graham after her failed attempt to kill John Rhodes. She, in fact, wouldn't even appear at the Tewksbury trials, having remarried and moved to Los Angeles. Her new husband was a wealthy businessman, and they would actually travel the world. Unfortunately, in her later years, she was plagued with paranoia and delusions, and would spend a fair amount of time in an insane asylum. Annie Graham died in Phoenix in 1961 at the age of 94. You'll sometimes see it written that she visited Pleasant Valley just once, but it was so unlike the Eden that Tom Graham made it out to be that she never went back. That fact is actually hotly disputed, with other sources saying that she never journeyed there at all. As for the Graham's property, in 1895, the Pleasant Valley property was sold for $3,100, while his Tempe property was sold for $2,500 cash and the assumption of a $500 debt. Since Tom Graham was the last of his family directly involved in the conflict, and Ed Tewksbury was the last of his family directly involved in the conflict, there was no one to continue the fighting. And as I've said several times over the course of this series, there was almost a gag order about the whole war among Tonto Basin residents going well into the mid-20th century. Old warriors didn't want to talk to avoid either incriminating themselves or, worse, kicking off more violence. Young men and women kept their family secrets, again, either to avoid incriminating their parents as well as not to dredge up the past. Much like Zane Grey, all that many people had to go off of to understand the conflict was myth and legend. So that makes this a great time to stop and ask, what the heck just happened? To be honest, this is a very difficult question to answer, and every author seems to have his own pet theory about what caused this conflict to erupt like it did. Many distill it down to an economic dispute between cowboys and shepherds competing for the range. One source puts it down to a complex interaction between honor and conscience, as the worldviews of hashknife cowboys, Mormon pioneers, frontiersmen, and others clashed. Another source chalks it up to the effects of the sheer amount of trauma those living on the edge of civilization experienced, constantly under attack by natural forces or Apache or who knows what. And others? Well, others just treat it as two sides turning on each other. After reading and talking about this for months now, I can say that in my opinion, it was everything above mixed together. To say that it was just economics is too simplistic, but we can't ignore the tensions that bringing sheep into Pleasant Valley caused. To say that it was deeply psychological maybe gives you the underlying cause, 
but doesn't touch on the specific catalysts that caused this to erupt into a full-scale family feud. Looking back, I see first the Treaty of War as a major breaking point as the Grahams revealed that they were willing to sell out everyone to get rich. Then I would say the next breaking point was the shootout at the Middleton Cabin, when Jim Tewksbury's terse response to a request for basic frontier hospitality was a mistake. The showdown there really fed everyone into the meat grinder. And though it is contested, I have no problem believing that Jim Tewksbury fired on Hamp Blevins and his party first. I would say the third breaking point was the Graham attack on the Tewksbury cabin, where we were solidly stuck in a cycle of revenge. And finally, the murder of Tom Graham was the punctuation at the end of this horrible, long story. Neither side could let it go, and it cost a man his life for probably no good reason. In the end, the whole affair, which remember left anywhere between a dozen and five dozen men dead, depending on how you count, reminds me of nothing more than a quote by Marcus Aurelius. How much more harmful are the consequences of anger and grief than the circumstances that arouse them in us? But we have now reached the end of the Pleasant Valley War, and it's time to turn our attention elsewhere. We're not going to travel too far, though, because I want to follow up with some of the side players in the Tewksbury-Graham feud, men like Andy Cooper, Commodore Perry Owens, and Jim Houck. So join me next week as we examine frontier justice in Arizona and the men who made it their mission to enforce the law, even if they weren't always great at keeping it themselves. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.